Jodcast. Honey, I'm home! With David Alt, Jen Gupta, Libby Jones and Tim O'Brien. The Jodcast. September 2010 Extra Edition. And welcome to the Jodcast. And today we have the very welcome return of the very lovely Jen Gupta. Hello, Jen. Hello, Dave. Welcome back. Thank you very much. It's really good to be back. It's been a fantastic summer. Um, but of course, I've been keeping up to date with the Jodcast. Of course. And, and hearing, hearing you back in Manchester and Aww. around VLA and around Merlin. And things like Everywhere. That. Everywhere. So in case anyone hasn't listened to the shows over the summer, can you remind us of what you've been doing for the last few months? Right, yes. Well, in at the beginning of May, in fact, the day after the election, I went to... I, I flew over to Toronto and have spent the four months since, up until last week, uh, travelling around Canada and America, going and looking at science centres, looking at how science communication is done over in America and Canada, and hopefully bringing that back over to the UK. So uh, once I have past everything through uh, in my mind, I will be trying to find a way of getting those lessons of science communication out to, uh, out to the science communication community here. I was blogging about each place I visited because I went to lots of science centres, went to some planetaria, uh, but I also went and met various astronomical associations. I went uh, up Mount Tam in San Francisco and had great fun up there. I was out in the wilds of West Texas and saw every planet through a telescope, including Pluto, which isn't a planet, so that's fine. But it's just one of those things. It was amazing. And, yeah, just generally having an utterly fantastic time. Have I mentioned recently how um, jealous I am of you? Uh, and I went uh, two kilometres <laughs> underground to Snow Lab. And oh, Dave, 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 Dave. Stop. Sh- you're showing off now. <laughs> It's been a crazy summer, but I have missed you guys, it, and, and it was really good to, to have our episode of the Jodcast in Reston, Virginia. So, that was it's, good. And it's nice to be reunited now. Yes. And of course, there is the, there is the chance to be reunited again in person uh, on the 25th of September. That's right. We've mentioned Jod Pub a few times in the last couple of shows, and we finally picked a date and a venue. So as Dave said, that's the 25th of September, which is going to be a Saturday. And we're going to be in Crow 2 in Manchester, which is by the BBC building, which is also close to train stations, car parks. Um, We're starting at 4.30 in the afternoon. I'm not sure how long it will go on for, but come along, have a drink, meet your favourite Jodcaster. There's details on the website, on the forum... And also let us know if you're going to come just so we have an idea of numbers and we'll be the geeks in the Jogcast t-shirts in case you don't know what we look like. Yes. Although you, if you really want to know what we look like, you can find... Can we find pictures of us of um, Jogcast Live on the website? I think the Jogcast Live photos are up on Flickr. I think jogcast.net slash live still works and has a link to okay. the Flickr pictures. So yes, you can find out what we look like from Flickr. But uh, let's get on with the rest of the show, because uh, in this show, uh, we see the welcome return, not just of us, but of Tim as well. He's going to be answering your astronomical questions. And of course, we're going to round up the feedback that we've had since the last show. But first, before all of that, uh, I'm taking a trip back to Boston, because at, uh, whilst I was there, I went along to MIT to meet Dan Evans, who is uh, he's a bit of a... A TV personality, as well as being a researcher and soon-to-be fellow of a university. Okay. But he's a, an amazing guy, and here is the interview. I'm here at MIT with Dan Evans, who is an astrophysicist here. Uh, Dan, welcome to the Jodcast. Thank you very much. Great to be here. No problem. Um, just tell us a little bit first about uh, your research here at MIT. MIT is very important with Chandra. Uh, That's right. Uh, Chandra uh, is controlled by Harvard and by MIT on behalf of NASA. It's uh, actually a a huge grant that that NASA gave to the two institutions to run it. Chandra was launched back in July 1999, so it's almost at its 11th year now. And Chandra's main job is to take wonderful images of the sky in X-ray light. 
the special thing about Chandra is that it takes incredibly sharp images. And from that, we can actually figure out a wide range of astrophysics, ranging from stars, sometimes even to planets, to galaxies, to black holes, to even the largest structures in the universe, namely galaxy clusters. Mm. And your particular um, field of uh, expertise is within the X-ray and multi wavelength observations related to black holes. That's right, yeah. So I primarily concentrate on Chandra observations of these guys, but I often use uh, complementary observations from uh, the Hubble Space Telescope and also the VLA, the Very Large Array of Radio Telescopes down in New Mexico as well. So looking particularly at supermassive black holes in active galactic nuclei, why are you studying that? give, Give us a reason why. Well, let let me give you a a quick recap as to what an AGN, or an active galactic nucleus, is. This is uh, the class of galaxies with supermassive black holes that are actively accreting or actively eating a huge amount of material. So it's kind of like this. You you can imagine a black hole is kind of like a a bath plug, for want of a better description. And material flows down towards this black hole bath plug and sort of slowly spirals around it. And as it gets closer and closer to the black hole, it actually spins faster and faster. Now, in order for that material to actually fall into the black hole, it's actually got to, as we say, lose angular momentum. It does that through frictional forces. Now, these frictional forces, effectively rubbing, generate heat. Heat generates light. And that light is actually given off primarily in X-rays. So by making photographs of the night sky in X-rays, we can actually figure out where the black holes are and what they're doing and how they're eating. Okay, so my particular interest is to actually figure out um, exactly how much material accretes down to the black hole and in turn what happens to that material as it does so. So around 10% of AGN, of active galaxies, actually hosts what we call jets. Now these are extraordinarily collimated beams of plasma that are shot out from close to the vicinity of the black hole. And they actually race outwards to extraordinary distances, something like 2 to 3 million light years away from that black hole. Now jets actually act, for want of a better description, as energy carrying channels. They transport these vast sums of energy up to these huge distances. And in doing so, they can actually regulate the largest structures in the universe, which are namely galaxy clusters. So my interest is to actually understand how the accreting material actually falls onto the black hole and how exactly these jets are produced, and in turn what those implications are. So what's our current thinking on how these jets are produced? Very good question. Wish I knew. No, no. <laughs> so there, there are two main mechanisms. Um, actually, but both were were put forward by a, a Brit by the name of Roger Blanford, who's a professor out in Stanford, I believe. Blanford and one of his collaborators, Payne, actually came up with the idea that jets can actually be launched from the edges of accretion disks. All we need to know is that intense magnetic fields and very wound up and collimated magnetic fields are needed to drive these jets off. So Blanford and his colleague Payne actually put forward the idea that jets are actually launched from the very edge of the accretion disk, very close into the black hole. And um, that's one idea for jet production. The other one is the so-called Blanford-Znayek effect in which the actual rotational energy of the black hole, the spin of the black hole, is tapped. And you can imagine the magnetic field lines, and I'm waving my fingers here, can actually um, can wind up into a helical pattern. And it's from along that helix that magnetic fields can propagate. And indeed, that's how plasma can flow along them and form a jet. Two kind of hand-wavy descriptions, but mm. both are equally viable. And it's one of my goals is to actually understand exactly which one can produce these powerful jets. Now, these jets are, are going at an incredible speed. That's they? right. Yeah, they, they race out to... Pretty much close to the speed of light, actually, although that is somewhat dependent on the environment through which a jet propagates. So you can imagine that you have a, a somewhat more uh, dense environment and the jet will actually sometimes slow down, become transonic with respect to that gas, and then become uh, somewhat turbulent as well, and then kind of flare out and puff out into a big fuzzball. And the, the way that these jets propagate can actually affect the evolution of the galaxy itself. Not only that, it can actually affect the largest gravitationally bound structures, which are galaxy clusters. So it's a pretty well-established fact that a certain portion of jets actually live in these giant um, X-ray baths. And these baths are uh, incredibly hot uh, balls of gas that typically have extent of several million light years again. 
the temperatures are a couple million degrees and so they emit x-rays and so the jets actually effectively blow bubbles in this gas and in doing so they actually regulate the subsequent evolution of that galaxy cluster in other words galaxy clusters wouldn't look like galaxy clusters without jets at the heart so this tiny pinprick of a black hole turns out to affect the larger structures in the universe that's pretty important that's very important yes so if we can just take it back to this small pinprick of, of the black hole, um, you mentioned earlier about black hole spinning, and uh, is it, it's my understanding that not all black holes spin. Hotly, it's hotly debated oh, issue. Oh, oh, okay. So I'm going to speak for the moment about supermassive black holes, which okay. is, is where I do my research. Um, this is an incredibly, incredibly contentious issue, um, at least in the X-ray community. We know that black holes can actually or should actually be spinning and simulations uh, show that black holes that may have actually really started uh, spinning up at redshift of 6 or something like that um, can actually have a pretty appreciable spin today. Measuring that black hole spin on the other hand is darn difficult. So we actually primarily use Chandra observations and observations with other X-ray instruments to figure out exactly how black holes are, are spinning. The way we do that is to exploit a particular line, which we call the ion K-alpha line. So in a regular sort of picture, then you have an accretion disk, it's orbiting the black hole, and the ion K-alpha line is given off, and you can imagine that the portion of the accretion disk that's coming towards you um, is going to be blue shifted. That means it's going to be a displacement to the to the blue side, whereas the uh, portion that's receding from you is going to be red shifted. So that's just like the Doppler effect. So this gives rise to what we call a double horned profile. Now, unfortunately, that's not the end of the story. Then relativity comes into play. Then relativity can actually alter the the um, the exact physical shape of this line, and it becomes distorted and skewed and kind of twisted up. So the goal really is to measure this distortion in this line. It produces a very noticeable uh, distortion, but you have to have incredibly sensitive observations in order to be able to get that distortion and also to disentangle it from other effects that could be mimicking it. So very hot topic, very contentious topic, but if we can solve it, we can actually understand how the black hole um, can actually spin up throughout the history of the universe, and that's incredibly important for cosmology. So, how does uh, black hole spin originate? Okay, that's a great question. Um, the current leading theories actually predict that galaxy mergers are responsible for this. So, in earlier stages of the universe, you can actually get galaxies flying into one another. And then, eventually, the black holes will coalesce together and, in doing so, release gravitational radiation. And so, sustained galaxy mergers over the history of the universe can actually spin up a black hole. That's the first way. And then, subsequently, you need accretion of material in order to change that spin as a black hole grows older. So accretion can actually proceed in one of two ways. It can be called um, sustained and ordered, in which the idea is that you have a, a, a definite motion to how the accreting material falls onto the black hole, and that can pretty easily spin up a black hole. The other idea is that the accretion is so-called chaotic, and that means you can kind of imagine water droplets flying towards that black hole from all sorts of directions. And that really doesn't have a huge effect on the spin of the black hole, because of course everything's coming into the black hole from every single direction, so it's not going to alter the, the, the spin rapidly. So by piecing together these uh, measurements from the X-ray, we can actually begin to understand which one of these models was correct, and how accretion over the history of the universe proceeds. So just returning to uh, the jets, is that the only method of... Sorry. Are they basically the be-all and end-all? Or is there another method of, uh, of energy transference? Transference is a good word, I like that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, no, jets aren't actually the be-all and end-all. What we actually know to be pretty commonplace are wind. Now, winds, unlike jets, are a heck of a lot slower. Winds typically have velocities of around two, three, maybe 500 kilometers per second. Now, we believe winds are actually very commonplace in most AGN, in most active galaxies, whereas jets probably occur maybe only around 10% of the time, something like that. So the winds actually turn out have a very important role in how galaxies, individual galaxies, will evolve. So 
Something that, that's really been impressed upon me over the past year or so is, is what we call the galaxy color magnitude diagram in astrophysics. And this basically says that galaxies fall into two rather distinct groups. The first one is the so-called blue cloud. Now here the galaxies are actually uh, blue in terms of their colors, and they're actively accreting, actively eating material. And in those sources, we believe there's rapid black hole growth and rapid star formation to accompany that. Now on the completely different side, there are galaxies that form the so-called red sequence. Now, these galaxies are actually much more massive than their blue counterparts. We call them red or dead ellipticals. So that means that the black holes are larger, the stellar populations are more massive. But on the other hand, the black holes are kind of wimpy in terms of how much material they accrete. They don't eat very much, they don't do very much. Now really the name of the game in terms of galaxy evolution is to understand how these galaxies undergo the transition from blue to red and how their black holes grow in doing so. And one of the leading explanations that we invoke in astrophysics is to, in, uh, is to involve outflows. So these outflows could actually be responsible for gently quenching star formation. So that will allow a black hole to uh, grow less quickly, but also allow uh, stars to form less rapidly. So you can see immediately that if we have this idea of AGN outflows, the black holes and the stellar populations of the galaxies are actually going to kind of evolve in lockstep. And this goes towards the sort of holy grail of galaxy evolution, which is to understand exactly why there's such a strong correlation between the mass of a black hole and the mass of the stars within a galaxy. And outflows really are the leading explanation. So one of the main ways we can actually search for outflows is to perform observations with Chandra and with the Hubble Space Telescope to figure out exactly what the spatial extent of these outflows is, to figure out how much energy these outflows are carrying outwards, and in turn to figure out how much mass the outflows are transporting. So if we can do that, we can actually provide some pretty strong constraints for our cosmology friends to go back and input into their simulations of galaxy growth. You say that the size of the black hole is correlated to the size of the stars. Is it, is it a simple size as, as one gets bigger, so does the other? Yes, exactly that. It's, it's a remarkable correlation. It was only discovered, I believe, back in 99. And really it's defined this past decade in terms of galaxy evolution theories. And we're all searching for exactly why this should uh, take place. And really outflows are by far and away the prime explanation for it. We just need to find out exactly how commonplace they are and exactly how much material they transport outwards. Okay, so uh, you said that uh, only 10% of supermassive black holes accrete rapidly. Yes. Only 10% of those have jets. So we're talking only 1% of galaxies which uh, are accreting rapidly and have jets. And yet this is being hotly studied. Can I don't want, to, want you to explain why you're studying this, but why are you studying this? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for diminishing my research. No, not at all, not at all. Um, two points to come back to you on that one. The first one is that it could very well be the case that all supermassive black holes have undergone a period of activity, and in turn that all of those have actually uh, shed jets or produced jets over the course of their, their lifetimes. So we need to understand both the galaxies that currently are active and those who aren't to actually understand how uh, the galaxies can evolve and what that implies for a cosmological context. The second point to come back to you on is the energetic output of these things. Jets are amongst the most powerful objects in the universe. The energy that's given off by a typical jet might be something like 10 to the 51 watts. Obviously we need to understand how these gargantuan sums of energy are given off. And as I've said before, we need to understand exactly what the impact of these vast sums of energy is on the environments into which, these, uh, into which they propagate. So yeah, only 1% of, of, a, of galaxies may host jets, but that's a very important 1%. Mm. And uh, you're here at MIT at the moment. You've got Chandra, uh, MIT Harvard, with, with Chandra. What is the present, what is the future for X-ray astronomy? So the present is actually pretty good. We have a, a number of X-ray observatories. Chandra isn't the only one, although um, it's probably the, the best suited to studying these objects. Uh, we have XMM-Newton, which is a ESA-led mission with substantial participation from the UK, actually, and mainly in terms of, of Leicester, Birmingham, Bristol, Cambridge have large X-ray groups. Um, 
XMM's job is to collect enormous numbers of photons, whereas Chandra um, has a more limited uh, photon collecting ability. It has much sharper resolution. So the two are very much complementary. We also have Suzaku, which is a Japanese-led mission with substantial participation from NASA. Now, Suzaku's job is to not only constrain what we call the soft X-rays, these are the less energetic X-rays that we see, but also to constrain what the properties of hard X-rays, i.e. more powerful X-rays, are. So with these two things working in tandem, we can actually determine a huge amount about the physics of the innermost portions of the accretion flow that surround a black hole. There are other X-ray missions. We have RXTE, which is the Rossi X-ray Timing Explorer, which is led out of MIT and also at UC San Diego. And XTE's job is to perform very detailed timing observations and look for very short oscillations in the light that's given up from the accretion disk. So XTE's job is to look for flickering. So we have all these wonderful X-ray uh, capabilities. But, and there's a but, with all these things in astronomy, there's a funding issue. And it turns out that X-ray astronomy is actually facing a, a bit of a, a, a lack of missions over these next 10 years. As we all work towards the holy grail, really, which is the IXO. This is the International X-ray Observatory. So IXO really is a tri-state approach to X-ray astronomy. It combines the efforts of NASA, of ESA, and the Japanese community as well, JAXA. And IXO really is going to supersede the capabilities we have today. It's essentially going to act as a massive light collecting bucket. And from that, we can determine with great precision exactly how black holes spin by measuring the iron K alpha line, determine exactly how outflows proceed, and we can measure these and watch these evolve with time. And we can even watch things orbit around the supermassive black hole and decay as they fall in towards that black hole. So that's what it does in terms of black hole physics, but it also does extraordinary things for supernovae, for understanding what the content of the intergalactic medium is, for understanding even planetary astronomy. It's going to be very important as well. So IXO really is the, the holy grail of, of our community, but it's an incredibly expensive mission, something like $3 billion, and we need a huge amount of support to get it done. So I'm crossing my fingers. Mm. And when is the possible launch date? I think the, the current projection is something like 2021, but that's highly dependent on funding as well. Mm. There's a big review in the US called the Decadal Survey right now. ESA is underg undergoing a pretty similar process called Cosmic Visions, and the outcomes of those two reports are going to be later this year. And so that's really going to give us a strong clue as to where the field is headed. Exciting times ahead for X-ray astronomy, let's hope. I think so. I think so. All the very best with your research. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. Thanks for that, Dave. Ah, no problem. And uh, an interesting story about that particular interview was that I was driven there by duck. By duck? Duck, yes. Can um, you elaborate on that, please? <laughs> yes, I can. <laughs> um, one of the people that I've worked with uh, for Colonial Radio Theatre on the Air is a guy called Joe Zamparelli Jr. And he works for the Boston Duck Tours as an actor and a driver. And these Boston Duck Tours are basically giant tanks, which are a boat, which can also go on the road. Yes, they have those in Liverpool, I think. They're bright yellow, and it's very embarrassing driving around Liverpool in one of those. <laughs> yes, I was in the bright pink one. Ooh. Uh, oh, I know. Uh, but I, was, I went on the duck tour. I, I got to meet uh, Joe and had a had great fun. I even drove the duck. Wow. Whilst, whilst out in, in the harbour. And then he deposited the rest of the audience back at the Science Museum. And, he, and we went and we had some lunch. He drove me around Boston. We sat down. We had a chat. And then he said, where are you going? And I said, I need to get to MIT for 1.30. Uh, and he said, oh, right, fine. Well, I'll drive you there. And so <laughs> I was chauffeured by duck to MIT. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm just trying the photos of this I'm trying to picture it but I really can't <laughs> there is a photo of the duck yes it's on my um, it's on my Picasso page right. which if anyone wants to go to it's picassoweb.google.com forward slash users forward slash JD alt okay so I assume um, you've got lots of photos up there on, of your tours around the states and Canada lots and lots uh, that's 
I, I've got... I, I separated how I did with my blogs. I've got my personal blog and my science communication blog, and I have my personal photos and my science communication photos as well, so... Check you out. Check me out indeed. So yes. do you have a highlight of your trip, or was it all just too amazing? Ah, uh, highlights of the trip. I think even... Even now, even after everything, there's Snow Lab remains a huge, uh, a huge bonus part of my trip. It was, it was just amazing. Uh, and West Texas, going to the Star Party. I was, I, I gave a little talk about science communication Aww. and how important dark sky environments are. And uh, and then I got to see all of the planets through the Plus telescopes. Pluto. Plus Pluto. Yes. Yes. And the snow. And while you were at Snow Lab, you did an interview for us, didn't you? And I think that's in the that's August right. Extra show. If anyone hasn't yes. listened to that yet, yes, it is. So yeah, I, I I've had uh, quite a summer. Yes. But someone else who's been away for the summer is uh, Dr. Tim O'Brien, and he is back today. And here he is to answer your questions put to him by Libby Jones. Our first question is from Carol, who emailed in to ask. What passed through the sky at 8:51 last night? Details are on the local news slash weather, but we missed the name, etc. And we're really excited about seeing this, but we're unable to help find out what it actually was. I hope we can help. Okay, yeah. I mean, it turned out that 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 was actually the International Space Station. So um, I, I checked, uh, and sure enough, um, there was a space station pass at that time. And in fact, we had a, a, a big sort of event really running it through our Twitter feed, through the Jodrell Bank um, Twitter feed. There was a, quite a few very bright ISS passes over a period of, of a week or so. And actually the weather, as it turned out, unusually, was very good um, in the U- across most of the UK, actually. Uh, and so uh, we started tweeting a little bit about when the ISS passes were uh, and encouraging people to get out there. And we actually had quite a, a huge response, actually. Um, I saw there were some beautiful ones visible over Manchester. We saw them in lots of different conditions, lovely clear skies, through thin cloud. The ISS was shining at light. Magnitude minus three, minus four, a very, very bright object. So it was so it was really good fun, actually. And there was a lot of response from people on Twitter. We posted a few time-lapse photos that we took as well, which got a lot of interest. Uh, and we were able to sort of ho- hopefully publicize the ways in which people can find out about when the ISS is, is visible. But the main ways are, are the, the Heavens Above website. And in Heavens Above which is www.heavens-above.com. Um, you go in and you have to tell the, the website where you are, basically. So you enter your, ge- you know, your geographical location, then knows where you are, uh, and then it will actually tell you, for example, the next 10 days' worth of bright ISS passes or even more uh, dramatically, things, things like iridium flares are quite exciting to look out for. I don't know, do you, have you ever seen an, an iridium flare? No, or? I never have, but I'm going to definitely check out this website. So. No, no, you need, you need to go and have a look. Iridium flares are basically these communication satellites that um, reflect um, the sun, just like the ISS does. But what happens is it's a relatively small sort of pool of light that they're reflecting onto the ground. So it's a bit like somebody in orbit with a torch going around sort of shining this torch pool of light on the ground. And so if it goes past you, if that pool of light goes over you, as you look up in the sky, what you'll see is just this um, sudden appearance of a bright light in the sky, which is actually just a satellite moving past. And then it fades away again after maybe 20 seconds or something. And the, the Heavens Above website will tell you exactly where that will appear and exactly at what time. So you can amaze your friends, drag them out of the pub, get them in the street and say, <laughs> look, look in that position, see what's going to happen. And they're, they're at fear. Oh, I'll definitely be doing that. <laughs> <laughs> so, there's a, so the Heavens Above is a really good thing. But then in, in, in the sort of, um, I guess, in the, in, in the modern world of Twitter, um, there's a couple of really useful things. One is, one is something called Twist. So T-W-I-S-S-T is a Twitter feed at Twist. Um, which will actually look up your, basically use the information you've given as to your geogra- geographical location and it will then tweet you um, prior to the twi- prior to an ISS pass. So that's very useful. Uh, and the other one is uh, a set of um, uh, feeds called Over Twitter, which is produced by, by Orbiting Frog, um, at Orbiting Frog on Twitter. Uh, and they're basically uh, a similar thing which combines information from heavens above but again, you'll put in, for example, over Manchester will sh- tell you what's visible over Manchester, over London, and so on and so forth. And we'll put a link into the big list of those as well. 
And the other interesting thing that happened actually during this particular phase of ISS passes was there was a, uh, basically a supply craft, one of the Progress Russian spacecraft um, that had visited the space station and had undocked. So one night when we were out there looking at those, uh, the ISS, you could actually see this um, faint uh, um, bright spot ahead of ISS orbiting the Earth. And when you looked it up, it was actually this Progress vehicle that had undocked earlier that day. So so, that, so you can not only just see ISS, you can even see the vehicles that are going up there to, to bring supplies. Okay, well, Carol, that, that answers your question. You saw the International Space Station. Next up, we had an inquiry from Philip Lee Rich. He says, the Perseids, we're told, are the dust left behind from Comet Swift Turtle along its orbit around the Sun. Most of this dust according to Wikipedia, is around 1,000 years old. This puzzled me as I was watching out for them the other week. The dust certainly won't be left along the length of its orbit like an explorer carrying a leaky bag of flour in order to mark its path through a forest. In fact, the dust will be blown further and further away from the orbit by the solar wind and radiation pressure, eventually contributing to the zodiacal light, and it's hard to see how any of it could end up in the diametrically opposite end of the comet's 130-year orbit. So how is it that the Perseids can be seen year after year and not just around the time Swift Turtle crosses the Earth's orbit? Perseids uh, are are basically a meteor meteor shower, um, shooting stars basically that we see in the sky, um, that we see in in the middle of August basically, it peaks in the middle of August. We see many more shooting stars uh, at that time um, than we would on average uh, during the year. So that's what, what a meteor shower is. Basically, these sort of dust grains, effectively, um, that are smashing into the Earth's atmosphere, moving at maybe 20,000 miles an hour. So they heat up and you see this bright whiz of light along uh, uh, along the sky. And funnily enough, I was quite lucky this year because I was in a, a very dark uh, sky location on holiday. Um, and it was lovely clear weather as well. And I saw many, 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 many Perseids um, <laughs> by, by hanging around until the early hours of the morning and sitting outside in front of the campfire, basically. Um, so it was really, really, really good fun. And just, just on that point, you know, the, they're called the Perseids because they, uh, when you see these shooting stars, they appear to sort of radiate from the constellation of Perseus. And all that is, is it's basically just the, uh, the, the, the relative velocities, basically, the directions from which those meteors are coming relative to the motion of the Earth as it moves around in its orbit. So you'll tend to see these things in the sort of after midnight is when they tend to peak because it's when the sort of, um, that side of the Earth is heading, you're heading directly into the dust that's sitting there in space in the latter half of the night, if you can sort of imagine that. Um, in fact, we saw, I was sitting watching these things, the Perseids were quite fast meteors that flashed across the sky. Whereas, in fact, the more, there were, there were several other, there were quite a few other meteors. If you ever spend any time out at night looking up at a clear sky, you will see, you will see shooting stars. And there were quite a few others that clearly weren't Perseids because they weren't coming from, um, the direction of Perseus. In fact, the, the, the nicest ones that, that, that we saw over that few nights around that time were actually almost coming in the opposite direction. And they were actually rather brighter and also rather slower. And if you think about it, it's because um, when, you know, with, with the Perseids, the Earth's moving into the dust stream. And if this, if the meteor comes from the opposite direction, it's sort of catching up on the Earth. So the speed, relative speeds will be slower. And so actually you've got this, you know, rather less of a fast whiz across the sky. You get more of a sort of nice burning thing that heads across the sky. Um, to answer Philip's question in particular, um, yeah, he's right. Uh, we now know um, that these meteor showers are basically dust that's been uh, boiled off effectively uh, off a comet. So a comet's this sort of dirty snowball idea. So a comet sort of comes in close to the sun on its orbit. Um, this particular comet, Swift Tuttle, which is a funny name, but it's named after two people, Lewis Swift and Horace Tuttle, <laughs> who discovered it in uh, in 1862. So um, this comet comes in close to the sun, it heats up, the sort of icy, what we call volatiles in it sublimate actually, they turn directly from solid into gas uh, and that sort of boils off effectively and it releases this dust into the uh, into the region around the comet. Now that process probably starts happening from, you know, maybe uh, maybe four or five times farther away from the sun than the Earth, in other words about four or five astronomical units we call it. So, so in fact, you know, from well out beyond the Earth's orbit, it'll start to sort of produce this dust, right? And then it whips round, round the sun and back out again. But there's that whole big long arc of its orbit where it's, where it's producing this dust off its surface. 
Swift Tuttle, the one that we think produces the Perseids, or we know produces the Perseids, does have an orbit that's about 130 years or so, about 133 years. It was discovered in 1862. It actually was re- rediscovered when it came back close to the sun again in 1992. So, um, so it's not going to be back until 2126. <laughs> um, so, so in fact, it's a while. So it's on this quite long orbit, but it does co- come, it crosses the Earth's orbit into the, its orbit intersects with the Earth's orbit. Now you sort of, sort of imagine these dust grains sort of boiling off this comet, if you like. The, the dominant, component of their speed, the dominant velocity, is actually the, the velocity of the comet. And so they sort of move along with the comet in its orbit. They'll stay fairly close to the orbit of the comet. Um, but they do come off with lots of variations in the direction at which they come off the comet, lots of variations in the speed, lots of variations in the size and the mass of the grains. And all those things affect the way in which those grains then continue to orbit. And it turns out that the um, for example, perturbations produced by um, relatively close encounters with Jupiter and Saturn, in particular, um, the the as Philip mentions in his in his comment, the pressure of the radiation from the sun, um, the interactions with the solar wind. Um, there's various ways in which the orbits of these dust grains are going to be modified, and in fact, it's possible to make a calculation of that. You can actually put these things in crank a big handle on your computer program <laughs> that, that, that calculates Newton's laws and these other rather more complicated physical effects. Um, be, the way it's done typically is to do, adopt what's called a Monte Carlo approach, which is the, the Monte Carlo comes from where the casino is. So it's like lots of random things. So you basically run your program a million times with slightly different values for all these parameters and you see what the statistical uh, distribution of the answers is. So you get some feel for the range of possibilities that might come out. And it turns out that actually they do spread around the, the orbit quite uh, quite markedly, in fact. So, so Philip was worried and saying, well, why don't we only see the Perseids around the time that the comet's actually um, near the Earth? Why do we see it every year um, through this whole 130-year orbit? And that's actually because these things do spread out um, around the orbit of the, of the comet. Um, it turns out that, um, for example, you can actually calculate, uh, imagine these, put these dust grains that have been ejected the last time the comet came near the sun in 1862 and calculate where they would be now. Uh, and it turns out those same dust grains we would see uh, intersecting the Earth's orbit, in other words, perhaps being visible as, as shooting stars, as meteors, um, over a whole time period from something like 19, the 1950s up to the 2050s. Okay, so they've spread out over quite a large section of the of the of the comet's orbit, and in fact, it turns out that they've got this sort of periodic nature as well. That's due to perturbations by the by the giant planets, by Jupiter and Saturn. So some years you'll get more than other years. In fact, it turns out those sorts of calculations, um, you can sort of do that. You can say, okay, 1862. 133 years before 1862, 133 years before that. And you can keep injecting dust particles every time it comes near the sun for that whole arc near the sun and then calculate their orbits. And you, and it looks like actually that the, um, the main sort of standard lo- uh, level of Perseid meteors may be as much as uh, 25,000 years old. So that's many orbits of the comet, you know, that's many injections of, of, of dust. And the whole, you know, the whole stream of dust that spreads around the whole cometary orbit is actually maybe, maybe as much as a hundred thousand years old or, or even more. So it's quite a long lived, um, long lived meteor stream, it looks, the Perseids. I mean, the actual orbit of the comet's at quite an angle to the, to the plane of the solar system, the, the so-called plane of the ecliptic. So it's perhaps, um, quite stable, um, for that reason. So yeah, I would say that um, it's 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 actually the case that although yes, he's right, they do get perturbed, and the and the path of the comets gets spread. It gets the, these meteor, these dust particles that produce the meteors, get spread by rather a large amount. It's taking ten thousand, fifty thousand, a hundred thousand years for it really to to spread out hugely to sort of contribute to the background sort of zodiacal light, as he says. But there still will be this significant core. Of particles that stays quite close to the to the cometary orbit itself, and hence that's why we see the peak in in mid August as we do. I lost track now. I was quite fascinated by that. <laughs> <laughs> the next question is from Nick Beer. He wrote in to say, "I gather the universe started from a singularity at the Big Bang and has been expanding ever since. If so, in what direction relative to our galaxy is that singularity? What is happening there? What is between it and ourselves?" Is matter still being created there? How far from it have we travelled in 
the 13.5 billion years. When I hear that the universe is receding from us in all directions, and the further away galaxies are from us, the faster they are receding, I get the impression that we are considered the center of the universe. I hope these questions do not appear too silly. I would love to have your views. I adore the show, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thank you, Nick. We adore it too.、Um, yeah, I mean, this is a this is a sort of interesting question that 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 comes up,、um, you know, now and again. Yeah, I mean, there's this idea that the universe started from this so-called singularity at the Big Bang, and that that means a point of infinite density. Where everything's sort of squashed together, and so the amount of mass contained in a, in, in a very tiny volume gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and, and goes to infinity at a singularity. You could argue, I think, about singularities, and I think you know, I don't like singularities. It sounds unlikely, doesn't it? I, we, we might imagine that, that that maybe something would would operate to sort of、uh, something would come in to prevent a singularity, perhaps. But let's say, let's imagine there's certainly this point of, in the past at which the the, the density is very It's very high, and yes, the universe has been expanding ever since. Okay, ask what direction relative to our galaxy is that singularity? Okay, well, this is a sort of crucial、um, misunderstanding, really, of what's going on,、um, because that singularity didn't just happen. It's all. I think it's ruined, really, by by TV programs where they show a picture. Whenever the Big Bang's mentioned, they show a picture of an explosion. Right, and it's sort of looking at this explosion from the outside, and and they sort of sometimes they even go into reverse, and they see this explosion shrinking down, and it shrinks down to a point, and you sort of look at it and go, oh yeah, there's the point from which the Big Bang expanded and everything expanded out, but that's. Never the case, because of course, who's looking at this? We're all part of the universe. We can't sort of sit outside the universe and look at this thing expanding from a point. So the the much better way of thinking about this, I would say, is instead of imagining a point in space from which everything expanded, you've got to think about the distances between objects. So you think about the distances between clusters of galaxies that are widely separated, and what happens in the expansion of the universe is that distance increases. So you could imagine, in fact, the Best way to think about it: think about the universe perhaps being infinite. The universe might actually go on forever. We really don't know the answer to that yet. But the universe might go on forever. It's filled with all these galaxies, and the distance between those galaxies changes. So that as we go forward in time, the distance between them increases, and the universe is expanding. But the universe itself goes on forever; it's infinite. Wind the clock back, and the distances between those galaxies become smaller, and the galaxies become closer and closer together. But because the universe sort of goes on forever, out in every direction you might want to think,、um, there's no one place towards which they're all moving. So there's no one point at which there was. The Big Bang happened. So, in fact, the Big Bang happened、um, as much in Nick Beer's kitchen as it happened here in our Jodcast recording studio, <laughs> which is a very grand name, by the way, for where we actually are. But anyway,、um, yeah, the Big Bang happened everywhere, and so that really perhaps gets round a lot of perhaps the problems Nick's having with with this understanding, and that also gets round his his other problem, which is he gets the impression that we're considered as the centre of the universe. Which of course would be very, very strange if indeed if we coincidentally turned out to be at the centre of the universe.、Um, there is no centre to the universe in that picture. Okay, so although we look out into space and we see、uh, galaxies moving away from us, if we were sat in on a planet orbiting a star in any one of those other galaxies and we looked around us, we would also see every other galaxy moving away from us. And the classic.、Um, Picture to imagine that is the sort of、uh, current cake or something in the oven, where the where the where the raisins or the currents in the cake or the galaxies, and the and the cake mix is the space. And what happens is when you put it in the oven, it all expands, and the raisins all move away from each other. And if you were sat on any one of those raisins, feeling a bit warm,、um, in the oven, you would see all the other raisins moving away from you. And it wouldn't matter which raisin you picked; all the other raisins would move away from you. It doesn't mean you're at the centre of the cake.、Um, If that makes sense, got to imagine the cake's infinite. You've got a big oven, but hopefully that picture that picture works. Am I am I, am I, am I throwing you here with my with my random cake pictures? I'm just imagining the infinite cake,、yes. raisins, just going on there. Yeah, take a long time to eat it. That was some scone, though. <laughs> it would, it would, it would indeed. <laughs> We have another cosmological question from Russ Jenkins. If I understand it correctly, you are not able to give an estimate to the real size of the universe. Only an estimate to the furthest objects it will ever be possible to see, given the age of the universe, the speed of light, and a bit of adjustment for inflation. 
But we do have models for the Big Bang going right back to microsecond after the event, so surely we think we know what size it was then. Also, its total mass and total energy content. At what point do we lose track and stop being able to even estimate these things? Okay, that's a, that's a good. It's a good good question.、Um, I mean, we. I guess the, the the physics that we understand, the astronomy that we we believe we understand, we think we know the sorts of processes that would be going on to actually back to a good small amount of time after the Big Bang. So we can see back to about three hundred eighty thousand years after the Big Bang. This is where the cosmic microwave background was produced.、Uh, it's when the universe had expanded out to a point where the the, the density.、Um, Got to a point where the the protons and the electrons actually managed to combine、um, to form hydrogen. That meant that all the photons that were flying around in the universe at the time weren't scattering off the electrons anymore, and the universe became transparent. So it's a bit like the universe was sort of like a dense fog at early times,、um, and as the, and the fog thins out, and basically then you be, you're able to see right across the universe. The universe becomes transparent. That happened about three hundred eighty thousand years after the Big Bang. But although we can't see um, directly um, using photons to times earlier than that,、um, we believe we understand the physical processes. We know enough about physics and the way particles、um, interact to understand the processes that would have been going on even earlier than that. We can certainly go back to、um, to times of minutes and seconds after the Big Bang, when all the processes occurred that produced the light elements. So the hydrogen, the helium,、um, that was produced after the after the Big Bang,、um, and that was that was there's a famous、um, famous book、um, uh, called the first three minutes, which is worth、uh, worth looking at, which talks about those first three minutes and what happened in that process. But as you go farther and farther back in time, earlier than say the first few seconds,、um, then what's happening is the density in the universe is getting higher and higher. The temperatures getting hotter and hotter. The energies, therefore, are getting higher and higher, and it gets to the point where we're not. There's there's a point at which we're not. We've not been able to probe the physics using, for example, the large colliders and particle accelerators on the Earth. We haven't got to those energy scales yet, and so there's a point at which we might have theories about the way those particles sh- should interact、um, and should behave. But we haven't been able to test them directly in the laboratory, and so things start to become more uncertain. And actually, it turns out that the, the classical,、um, the classical time at which we say that we're actually we've got no idea what happens before that time, it's actually a very small time, a very short time. It's called the Planck time, and the Planck time is about ten to the minus forty-three seconds. Okay, so ten to the minus forty-three seconds is not、um, point. Forty-two zeros and a one <laughs> seconds <laughs> after the Big Bang. So this is、uh, quite a long way back, actually. But what, let me say, let me tell you, just perhaps explain what's significant as the Planck time. Basically, what it is is it's, it represents a time at which we think、um, the conditions are such that it's impossible to disentangle、um, quantum effects from gravitational effects. And although there's been a lot of progress made in physics about unifying the various forces,、uh, strong nuclear force, weak nuclear force, electromagnetism,、uh, one of the things that we're still missing is a really, and there's progress being made, but we're still really missing it is a good theory of, of combining gravity with those forces too,、uh, a good quantum theory of gravity. And so you can sort of imagine one way of looking at how to estimate that Planck time is to say, okay, if you had a particle of a certain mass, you could you could ask what's its Quantum mechanical size, and that's something called its Compton wavelength.、Uh, and you could also ask,、uh, what size would it be in order for it to be sort of inside its own event horizon, for it to be a black hole? And it turns out that by making those two sizes the same, its quantum quantum mechanical size and the size of、uh, it being a black hole, you can get basically a Planck mass、um, and a Planck length. The mass is actually about Uh, a microgram, actually,、um, but the length is、um, the length is tiny. It's about ten、um, to the minus thirty-five meters. The, you know, very tiny length. Ten to the minus thirty-five meters is 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 again not point thirty-four zeros in a one、um, meters. So you can imagine taking that microgram, roughly,、um, and sticking it inside a volume that small, you get a very high density, and that's. That time at which the universe had that density is about the Planck time, which is about ten to the minus forty-three seconds. And so, you know, 
Russ asks about, you know, models of the Big Bang going back. Yeah, we do go right back to microseconds after the event. The Planck time looks like the time at which, you know, we're really struggling to go any farther beyond that. He asks about the total mass and the total energy content. Yeah, we do have some a good idea of that. He does say, what do we think the size of the universe was then? Of course, that relates back to the question we just had, where the universe might actually be infinite. So it doesn't really make sense to ask how big the universe was. So when people say, oh, the universe was the size of a grapefruit or the universe was the size of a, a pea or something at some point in the past, I think what they're really saying is how big the observable universe was. So it's the bit of the universe we can see now that we've had time to see since the Big Bang, that light has had time to arrive to us from since the Big Bang is a certain size. The universe itself might be infinite, but we see a section of it surrounding the Earth we call the we call the observable universe. We can ask what size that was at these various um, times. And, and yeah, way back down at the Planck time, it was sort of like um, that the observable universe would have been basically less than a less than a Planck length, less than about 10 to the minus 33 centimetres. Uh, our final question this month is from Ankit, who writes, Dear Sir, I have opted to study electronics and communications branch of engineering. Can you please tell me whether it has any scope in astronomy? How can I then build my career in astronomy after engineering? Okay, um, again, a, a really good question from Ankit. Who, and, and in fact, you know, it's important to say that you know, when we talk about astronomy, we're often you know, talking about the things you've just been talking about, like the size of the observable universe or you know, the Big Bang or, or, or how stars live and die or something. Um, but in fact, for us to understand, for us to make progress in any, of that, in any of our thinking about how the universe works and our understanding of our place, within it then we need the instruments to do that and so you know if you were a theoretical astronomer you might say oh you know i don't even know where you know where, where some particular star is that i've been working on and you might never have looked through a telescope but you'd still need probably a com- these days you probably need a computer to do those calculations so you're, you're reliant on somebody who's been able to build you a fast computer to allow you to do really complex calculations Obviously, for most astronomers, many astronomers are observational, so they rely on telescopes. And we're completely, we, we, we work very closely, uh, side by side, shoulder to shoulder with engineers all the time. When we've got, we would have, an, an astronomer might have an idea, they might want to test a particular theory, they might want to say it would be absolutely great to be able to study that period of the universe when, between, when the universe became transparent, when the microwave background was, eject, was, was emitted, um, and when the first stars began to form and the first galaxies uh, were made. How are we going to do that? And actually, we might have ideas about what radiation might be produced and how bright it might be, for example. But we'd need an engineer to come to us and say, OK, um, you know, to see that, we'd need this sort of technology. We need a telescope this size. Is that possible? We go to the engineers. The engineers say, actually, you can't do that. It's too heavy. Or well, if we made it out of this material, maybe that would work. Or we'd need this sort of instrument in order to detect that type of radiation. And so it's a very, very close relationship. So you do see many jobs in astronomy, relating to astronomy, which are for engineers. And let me let me give you a very specific example, which relates to Jodrell Bank, um, which is our new eMerlin telescope. eMerlin is a, a network of, of six teles- radio telescopes spread across the UK. If we include the Lovell telescope, that's seven radio telescopes. Those telescopes are combined together to work as one. The process that's involved in getting the radio waves that arrive at the telescopes to produce a final radio image is a long and involved process and it involves many areas of engineering. Not not only do you have to build those physical structures, those dishes, to the right size and the right shape, the dishes have to be the correct parabolic shape and so on, to focus the radio waves to the focus. The radio waves then have to be turned into an electrical signal by a receiver. Those receivers are cooled down to about 20 degrees Kelvin or even lower sometimes. Um, so how do you do that? What's the engineer involved in cooling something down to that temperature? It's refrigeration, it's cryogenics. You've got to turn that into electrical signal. You've got to bring that down. Um, you've got to change the uh, frequency of those electrical signals. There's a lot of analog electronics involved in that. Very precise, precision um, engineering. We have engineers that build those receivers for us here at Jodrell Bank. In the case of E. Merlin, what then happens is those electrical signals are turned into an optical signal because what E. Merlin does is it brings back all the signals from the remote telescopes on optical fibres. So you've got to turn an electrical signal into an optical signal and you fire those photons of light down an optical fibre um, all the way you know, across the UK. When they get back to Jodrell Bank, they've got to be turned back into an electrical signal again. Okay, so this is this is optoelectronics, this this process, 
Um, and then you've got to digitize those signals. We digitize them. So we have very fast samplers that can digitize millions of times a second the strength of that signal. And then those things are combined into a basically a specialized computer, a bit of hardware called the correlator that has to combine them. It has to make correct for the time delays between the times at which the signals arrived at the different telescopes um, by comparing that signal with a time signal from an atomic clock. After that point, at some point, eventually astronomers get involved. But there's a huge amount of engineering that's required in order for us as astronomers to sort of make the conclusions we do about the universe. And it's often right at the, often what's involved in engineering and astronomy is right at the cutting edge of what's, of what's capable. As I say, in the case of emailing in terms of high speed data transfer and the volume of data transfer is immense, as well as all these very specific and wide ranging areas of engineering from structures to optoelectronics uh, to digital electronics and so on. So yeah, there's great scope for, for Ankit to, to work in astronomy. And we'll put a link on the website about, uh, you know, where you can find out more about that. Thanks to Carol, Philip, Nick, Russ and Ankit for their astronomical questions. And thanks for Tim for answering them all wonderfully and like enthralling me as well. Uh, and if you have any more questions, please get in contact um, on the website www.jogcast.net Thanks for that, Tim and Libby. And now we get to the part of the show where we put in all of the odds and ends that we couldn't fit in anywhere else. So, Jen, do you want to get us started? Okay, um, during August there was DragonCon over in the States, which is a big science fiction um, convention. And the astronomy cast team normally go along to that and they record a live episode and they have a lot of fun but something else that happened at DragonCon this year was the release of a comic about the discovery of Hanny's Ververp. I think I've pronounced that correctly. So this comic is available online as a free PDF, or you can also order a copy of it. It's $5 plus tax plus shipping. So I ordered a copy and it came to £6, which is very cheap, I think, for a comic. And the Jogcast is mentioned. Ah. Albeit spelt slightly wrong. What, how did they, 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 they? They made a spelling mistake, oh. which I'm assume will be rectified in future editions. But if you want to know about the role that the Jogcast played in all of this, then go and read the comic. Yay. Uh, you, will you bring it along maybe to, uh, to Jod Pub so that we can see? I'm not sure if it will arrive in time, but if it does, then yes. I'm also thinking of maybe trying to get everyone like Chris Lintot and people to sign it because I'm that much of a geek. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other thing that happened at Dragon Kong was the Parsec Awards uh, for yes. science fiction. But even though a couple of shows that I'm in were nominated, I didn't get a prize. Oh, I think the 365 Days of Astronomy has won something at the Parsec Awards before, because I'm sure Stuart's got a little trophy. Ah. Oh, that will have been where I saw a Parsec trophy. Yes. Were you thinking of stealing it? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, to get, I, I've been nominated. Well, the Byron Chronicles over at Darker Projects has been nominated for a couple of years, but uh, I still haven't managed to win. Oh, maybe next year. Yes, maybe next year. Uh, the other thing that we have about winners and competitions is the Astronomy Photographer of the Year. Those results have been announced, and Blazing Bristlecone by Tom Lowe of the USA was the winner, and we will put a link to that in the show notes. The exhibition will be at Greenwich Observatory until the 27th of February. It's uh, open from 10 till 5 and admission is entirely free. So go along and have a look at that. And talking of the Greenwich Observatory, an event that they're doing in November is something called How Not to Be Afraid of the Dark, which is an event of astronomy and poetry which i went to at the intec planetarium in winchester last week it's touring around the uk um it's a quite quite a strange thing to go to the first half is a play about a woman who does nighttime gardening but her garden shed is inhabited by the ghosts of women astronomers which is (laughs) quite strange and then the second part um jocelyn bell who i'm sure everyone knows discovered pulsar she's a great scientist Mm -hmm. she's also very into poetry and she's put together an anthology of poems that are to do with astronomy and so then the second half they turn the planetarium on so you were lying back you were watching the stars and she got members of the audience to read out various poems about astronomy which was fantastic Mm. i'm definitely going to see that then 
Yes, so it's at Think Tank in Birmingham, your favourite place. Absolutely, on yes. The, that's on the 23rd of September. Mm-hmm. And then at the Greenwich Observatory on the 29th of November. I'm not sure. I think in Birmingham they're also doing the planet. I think it's in the planetarium. Yes, it is. You probably yes. know more mm-hmm. than me, but I'm not sure about Greenwich. But it's it's really fantastic. I think they're suffering from people thinking it might be too scientific, but it's really not. And it's really it's something a little bit different. I took my mum and she thoroughly enjoyed it. Ah, well, I will be getting tickets for that. So. So if you want to stalk Dave, Yay! go along to Think Tank on the 23rd of September. Uh, and of course, if you want to stalk everyone else, uh, you can find their video tour around, uh, around the Merlin telescopes, which is up on YouTube. And, uh, yes, and the, the final video of that is in the process of being finished. Another radio interferometer that's got a station in the UK is LOFAR, which is the Low Frequency Array for Radio Astronomy. It's got its base in the Netherlands, but there are stations all across Europe. And the team at LOFAR UK have made a little video of a tour around the LOFAR UK site in Chilbolton down in Hampshire. And that's on YouTube, so we'll put a link to that. It's always interesting to see how the others do it. And of course, you've been discussing how we've been doing it uh, on the forum and on everywhere else. One of the things that's happened on the forum is a bit of a discussion about Kinky Vortons. You may have remembered uh, Kinky Vortons from the September show. Uh, So John has kindly posted an explanation of where Kinky Vortons come from. So if you want to see that, go onto the forum. And that's, of course, at forum.jodcast.net. But unfortunately, we haven't had anything via email. What's been going on? I have no idea. We've had a few questions for Ask an Astronomer. And of course, if you have any questions for Tim, then go on to the website and you can fill out a form to send those in. But yes, please be uh, please send us some email uh, or even some reviews on iTunes. We even do real posts as well. Yes, so. yes, we do. We've had a couple of postcards over the summer. Yep, not one from me, I'm afraid. No, no, our postcard boards are looking a bit bare, but I think that's partly because they keep on falling off because we're running out of pins here. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I did actually hear the the August Extra edition and hearing how it was cloudy here for the Perseids. I had a wonderful view over in West Texas. Of course you did. I I was going to email and say... I'll send you a postcard and say, yes, you, you guys should be here. And I heard you say, oh, send us a postcard and we'll come to you. Yeah. <laughs> that wouldn't have happened, would it? <laughs> no. Oh, but yes, uh, <clears throat> Meteors, very good fun. Yes. Facebook has also been rather quiet recently, but over on Twitter, quite a few people retweeted the September show, which we're always very grateful about. And searching for Jogcast on Twitter the other day, someone said that they went to the Jodrell Bank website, saw the name Jodcast, and it made them think of Jedward, which yeah. I'm a bit scared about. I, I think I'll go and get my hair cut today, then. <laughs> Grade two back and sides, yeah. Yes, but there hasn't been much feedback. I mean, guys, we, we love to hear from you, even if you just say, you know, I listened to the show, I liked it, because otherwise we kind of feel like we're talking to no one. Yes. 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 Uh, so there are many ways to get in touch with us. Uh, you can leave us uh, feedback on iTunes. That's always helpful because, of course, the more the more feedback we get, the more five-star ratings we get, the, the further we go up the search results, and that will get us out to more people and hopefully let us take over the world. But first... <laughs> You can, uh, if you do want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On the forum at forum.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at jodcast.net slash Facebook. And on YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. So unfortunately, that's uh, basically wrapping up this edition of the jodcast. But before we go, I know. Before we go, a final reminder that you can meet us before the next Jodcast goes out. You can meet us in the pub, the Crow 2, on the 25th of September at 4.30. And in case anyone's worried, we're not going to have microphones or anything like that. We are not recording (laughs) the the October October show there. (laughs) (laughs) It It is just a chance to come and meet us, put any questions to us that 
you might have had, at, say, at Jogcast Live and didn't get a chance to talk to us. Um, Stuart should be there. Dave, you're hopefully going to be there. I'm hoping to, yes. Um, Libby, I'll be there, although I think I'm doing a jiu-jitsu grading that day, so I might be a little bit broken. Um, Megan is over from Australia for a conference, so she's going to try and make it. Unfortunately, Mark, Adam and Chris are all very near to submitting their thesis theses. Theses. Theses by that point. So they probably won't make it. But uh, a Neil chance to meet there? some of the job cast. Neil will be there. Nick, we haven't heard back from, but I hope so. Okay. Cool. Yes. So uh, come along and see us. And please do let us know that you're going to be coming. Uh, and as, as Mark said, see us in our natural habitat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> So that just remains for us to thank Dan Evans for the interview. And until next time, or at least until Jod Pub, Jod on. Bye, everyone. (laughs) 